And now, Virgin Most Powerful Radio is pleased to present Hands-On Apologetics with renowned Catholic author and apologist, Gary Machuda. Welcome, everybody, to Hands-On Apologetics. You have entered into Virgil Most Powerful's Apologetics Dojo. It's great to be with you today. Man, yeah, coming off the weekend, uh, did a ton of research in the Deuterocanon. And, uh, man, that's one thing I love about apologetics. And hopefully this is something that you'll come to appreciate if you have just started scratching the surface and defending and explaining the faith is you learn a lot about everything. You know, it's uh, even though you may be researching a topic, looking into what the church teaches about a particular thing, just by uh, coming into contact with uh, all this literature, you kind of almost by osmosis learn a lot of things. So I've been diving into old Bibles and just, you know, it's amazing the scholarship that has uh, gone before us. And, uh, and you, you know, I learned a lot about the versification of Scripture, uh, early translations, things like that. And uh, so that's one of the beautiful things about defending the faith. When you learn how to defend the faith is that you learn a lot, not just about, you know, uh, the Petros-Petra distinction in Matthew 16, but you learn a lot about uh, just all sorts of subjects. And talk about learning a lot about subjects. Coming up on the other side of the break, we're going to have Father Gregory Pines with us and talk about his brand new book, Prudence, Choose Confidently, Live Boldly. And on this side of the break, we're going to do what we always do. That is, we're going to look at informal uh, fallacy. Today's Finding the Fallacy, by the way, is the fallacy of equivocation. And we're also going to learn a little bit about an early church father. And today's early church father, for those who love church history and apologetics. And by the way, this early church father is also, also an awesome church father to um, read during Lent. It is St. Ignatius of Antioch. So we're going to talk about him. We're going to talk about equivocation and all that good stuff. But before we even do that, I want to welcome all of you to the Apologetics Dojo, beginning with our live stream audience. Hi, everybody. And I want to welcome all of you listening on radio around the country and also via podcast around the world, either through our handy-dandy phone app or through our flagship website, which is virginmostpowerfulradio.org. And by the way, if you're uh, going to visit our website, check out the upcoming conference on marriage and family in May. You don't want to miss it. Uh, register because, as you know, with Virtual Most Powerful Radio conferences, they get sold out quick. And so you want to get uh, get in there, get your space, and uh, check it out because, ladies and gentlemen, marriage and family is under assault today, and we need to be well-armed, not only to fortify our own marriages and families, but to help those families and marriages that are in crisis. So you will learn a lot of great stuff at the conference. So check it out on the website, virginmostpowerfulradio.org. All right, so uh, let's see. Oh, by the way, if anybody wants to send me an email, I love hearing from listeners, especially if you know anybody who's doing a fantastic job defending the faith on social media. Um, 
please let me know. Uh, send me their contact information, and uh, I'll check it out. And if it's dojo worthy, we'll have them on the show. Um, you can do that through our uh, official dojo mailbox, which is questions at handsonapologetics.com. And that is the quickest way to get a hold of me, questions at handsonapologetics.com. Um, I don't know. There are all sorts of um, interesting uh, portals, I guess you could say, out there. I, I get emails from uh, all sorts of weird directions, and that always scares me because I'm always worried that somebody is trying to contact me and uh, it's just lost out there in cyberspace. So use the official uh, mailbox, which is questions at handsonapologetics.com. By the way, if you do not want me to respond to something, please send me a message on Facebook because I never check my messages. <laughs> so that's a great way not to get a response. Just FYI. All right, let's go to the finding of the fallacy for today, which is the equivocation fallacy. In logic, equivocation is an informal fallacy resulting from the use of a particular word or expression in multiple senses within an argument. It is a type of ambiguity that stems from a phrase having two or more distinct meanings, uh, not from the grammar or the structure of the sentence. In other words, you can't ch change the uh, meaning of a term while you're making an argument. Um, if you do so, the argument, might, the argument might sound as if it logically holds together, but in actuality, it's really disconnected because you're using the same term in different ways. And uh, by the way, the equivocation fallacy is one of those cornerstones of humor. A lot of jokes are made by equivocating on terms. So uh, just FYI, you know, logic actually is a lot of fun. And in this case, you know, uh, humor can be based on logical fallacies as well. Um, let's see. Is this applied during defending the faith? It is. But often it's um, it really requires close attention to spot it. Most people can spot where somebody's equivocating on terms. But um, usually when it does occur in apologetics, it's very subtle. And so the the key is to understand key terms very well, understand their definition, so that somebody doesn't pull over on you a fallacy like the equivocation fallacy. All right, so let's move on to our early church father, one of my favorites, by the way, St. Ignatius of Antioch. St. Ignatius was the third bishop of Antioch, succeeding St. Ephodius who was the intermediate uh, successor of St. Peter. He is accounted an apostolic father by reason of his having been hearer of the Apostle John during the reign of the Emperor Trajan from 98 to 117 AD, and, and probably about the year 110, he was sentenced to the beast in the arena. On his journey from Antioch to Rome and martyrdom, he wrote seven letters. Uh, his only extent authentic writings. Almost everything of the little that we know about him must be gleaned from these letters, and they're addressed to the Christian communities in Ephesus, Magnesia, Trellis, Rome, Philadelphia, and Smyrna. He also has a personal one to Bishop Polycarp of Smyrna, who is also, by the way, an, an apostolic father, and the most important of his letters is that given to Rome. Yet all seven are veritable treasures 
of um, history, of dogma. And by the way, that's why I say if you want some reading during Lent, and I, I love it when you can uh, integrate your spiritual development along with defending the faith, uh, the seven letters of Ignatius of Antioch are very powerful, especially keeping in mind that he's on his way to, to uh, being torn alive by beast in Rome. Uh, and by the way, those letters are available free online. You could just go to, say, newadvent.org, and you can read it right there. Um, chiefly because of the letters in their present form uh, so clear in their view of the hierarchy and monarchical church, the authenticity of these letters has long been questioned by Protestant scholars. The uh, genuineness of these letters has now, however, been uh, vindicated by J.B. Lightfoot, Adolf von Harnack, Theodore Zahn, and F.X. Funk. Uh, and their authenticity now is almost universally accepted. Um, uh, by the way, there's also something you need to know about these letters. The uh, text of the letters are preserved in three distinct forms known as the short recension, the long recension, and the Syriac abridgment. The long recension, extant in Greek and in Latin, was the first known and was regarded as authentic up to the 17th century. Then the short recension of the uh, was published, and now that is recognized that the long recension is actually an interpolation of that text made in the 4th century. It is the so-called short recension, extant only in Greek, which, of course, is the original language of the letters, uh, that is now regarded as the authentic text. Uh, the Syriac abridgment apparently was made from a no longer extant Syriac translation of the short recension. And, of course, the, the original Syriac um, was in Greek. By the way, another thing to keep in mind is that there are many letters of Ignatius of Antioch that uh, are circulated, but they are spurious. So only the seven letters are authentic. Now, uh, let's see. I think I have a uh, enough time to perhaps give a quick quote from one of the letters. Um, let's see. Yeah. Um, I want to I get a doozy, and hopefully I can find one. Of course, you know, his greetings to Rome is very interesting. Ignatius, who is called Theophorus to the church that has found mercy in the greatness of the Most High Father and in Jesus Christ, his Son to the church beloved and enlightened after the love of Jesus Christ our God. Very interesting. You know, Christ's divinity is affirmed at this very early date. Uh, by the will of him who has willed everything which is to the church which holds the presidency in the place of the country of the Romans. Worthy of God, worthy of honor, worthy of blessing, worthy of praise, worthy of success, worthy of sanctification. And because you hold the presidency of love, named after Christ and named after the Father, her there, uh, therefore I do salute in the name of Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, to those who are united in flesh and in spirit by every commandment of his, uh, he uh, who is filled with the grace of God without wavering, and who are filtered clear of every foreign stain. And that is Ignatius of Antioch's letter to the Roman and today, early church father.
Coming up next, we're going to be chatting with Father Gregory Pines about his brand new book, A Prudence. Stay tuned. Now, back to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda. If you'd like to join the conversation, call 888-526-2151. Here's Gary. And welcome back, everybody, to Hands-On Apologetics. We're going to talk about virtues, and specifically the virtue of prudence. And to help us do that, we have Father Gregory Pines with us. Father Pine served presently as the Assistant Director of Campus Outreach for the Thomistic Institute. He was born and raised near Philadelphia, PA. He attended Franciscan University of Studentville, where he studied mathematics and humanity. Upon graduating, he entered the Order of Preachers in 2010, and he is ordained priest in 2016 and holds an STL from the Dominican House of Studies. He has published numerous articles, scholarly articles, and in fact has a brand new book out that we're going to be talking about called Prudence, Choose Confidently, Live Boldly, and that's put out by our Sunday visitor and Father Gregory. Welcome back to Hands-On Apologetics. Hey, thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, it's uh, it's great to have you on. Was that bio updated? Because I know you've done a lot since uh, I I got that bio. Um, so it's not entirely up to date, but uh, <laughs> what I'm doing now is I'm a doctoral candidate at the University of Freiburg in Freiburg, Switzerland. Very nice. Yeah, yeah. So um, tell us uh, tell us a little bit about how um. And why you chose particularly the the prudence of virtue, or the virtue of prudence, excuse me, for your book. Yeah, I mean, the proximate cause was the editor asked me to write a book about prudence. Uh, The remote cause was I had uh, just done some research on the virtue for a couple of things, and I had, yeah, I'd come across it certainly in St. Thomas and then in Alistair McIntyre. And so I had a lot of questions about practical reason, a lot of questions about practical wisdom. And then I was also, you know, just in conversation with people who were asking, yeah, just just interesting questions about how to live well. So the book reflects that. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, the topic of virtue, I, I guess probably we should begin by defining terms. What do we mean by virtue? Yes. Yeah, so a virtue is a habit which means that it's a quality of the soul and it's specifically a good habit, which is to say that it's a quality which informs our, you know, our thinking and choosing or our feeling such that they think and choose and feel well. Um, and it trains them on whatever their objects are, which can be a little bit jargony, but the basic idea is that there are certain things out in the world which engage us as human beings and we want to kind of be in conversation with those things in a way that leads to our flourishing, in a way that builds us up in perfection. And the virtues are those habits through which we act in order to be kind of permanent and stable in our conversation with those goods, with those objects, such that we can enjoy them in a way which is appropriate for us as human beings, which is, you know, like life-giving for us as human beings, and so that we don't always have to agonize about it or anguish over it. It can be something that's easy, that's prompt, that's joyful, which becomes a kind of second nature, as it were. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I, I love the way you start your book because I think if you were to ask the average Catholic in the pew, uh, why should someone want to be Catholic? Why should someone want to you know, be join the Christian faith? Happiness probably wouldn't be the first 
thing on their list, right? It would it'd be, uh, you know, uh, so that you could live in accordance with God's law. You could obey the, the church. Happiness, you know, uh, that wouldn't be on the radar screen. Yeah, I think um, for me, it's a matter of motivating questions before answering questions. There's a, I have a Dominican friend who says that the most boring thing in the world is giving an answer to a question that hasn't been asked. So I can be in the habit of saying lots of things about lots of things, but not necessarily being in touch with the desires of the heart. So I think that when we ask questions about happiness, it helps us to get back in touch with the desires of our heart. And then when we pose um, kind of solutions, as it were, when we pose responses, they, uh, they inhere more fixedly uh, in our minds and hearts because we've actually stirred up the thoughts and stirred up the desires which animated us to go in search of solutions. So I think that happiness is the kind of baseline for stirring up those, those thoughts and desires because in everything that we do, we do it in a certain sense for happiness, says Aristotle. Whenever we go out and search, it's because we are in search of something which builds us up as human beings, which leads us onto a, a fuller realization of our human life. So which I, I wanted to put the virtues in that context so as to, yeah, I don't know, kind of accentuate or underline their urgency and their necessity. Yeah. Yeah. And, and like you said, that really is a baseline because uh, one of the most surprising things I encountered when I first started reading Thomas Aquinas was it, that is the ultimate goal is ultimately, you know, beatitude, happiness. And I thought, wow, how come no one told me about this when I was in catechism when I was a kid? Yeah. 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 So, no, I, when, when you like read the Summa, for instance, uh, he starts with God, who is the exemplar, and then he proceeds to man, who is the image, and then ultimately to Christ, who is both exemplar and image. So when we talk about things like we're made to the to the image of God, there's a kind of dynamism that's implicit in that claim. So we are made to the image of God, which means that we're made in the image, but also there's a dynamism to it, which is to say we should be more and more assimilated unto the image of God, or Christ, who is the image of God. Um, and the way in which we do that, you know, is by grace, virtue, gifts of the Holy Spirit, etc. But ultimately, St. Thomas characterizes it in terms of beatitude. So when he starts the second part, this part that's dedicated to the image, you know, to man and to his moral operation, he says, we've talked about God, so now it's time to talk about the image. And whenever you talk about these, you know, particular considerations, you start first with the question of beatitude. So the first five questions of the second part of the Sumer are about, are about happiness or about heaven, effectively, because what is you know, first an intention is last an execution, but it makes sense of the entire, the entire thing. So if you don't know the goal for which you are kind of striving or the goal for which you're working, then you're not going to be able to make sense of the means that you take to hand. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it wouldn't make sense for you to be reading a book on virtue either, because <laughs> I mean, if it isn't ultimately going to end up with your, uh, happiness here in in the this life and in the next you know what's the whole point of uh learning about things like uh growing habits such as virtues yeah no there yeah. there ultimately isn't one i mean saint thomas has some hilarious arguments when he talks about free will and he'll say like if we didn't have free will it wouldn't make sense to give commands or exhortations or commendations and the way that chesterton simplifies it he says it wouldn't make sense to say please and thank you um, so if there weren't a goal for which we were striving, if there weren't happiness at the end of the line and in kind of imperfect ways along the line, 
then why do this rather than that? You know, like why not join a nudity cult and worship the sun on the top of a beautiful mountain? You know, like it doesn't make any sense. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. So you need to have, you know, order in the discourse to give reasons for your hope. Otherwise, it's just so many assertions which often turn people off to the faith rather than get them curious about it. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, so not, uh, um, you know, happiness, there's different degrees of happiness, right? And uh, so you have to prioritize what is the ultimate happiness. And sometimes you have to go through some unhappiness to achieve greater happiness. Yeah, in the, in the first chapter of the book, I, I drew like a little bit on positive psychology to describe the difference between what we can call meaning happiness and then what we can call like pleasure or enjoyment happiness. So I think that what we as Catholics are, are motivated by are goods, right? So to ask about the meaning of life, even really to talk about happiness, is a kind of modern thing, truth be told. Um, the more kind of classic or medieval way in which to approach these questions is to talk about beatitude to talk about the end of life, right? And the, to talk about the goods at stake. So that we have the sense that we as human beings are made on the way toward the end. And if we are to attain to the end, we need to acquire those perfections which begin it in us, but also afford us the habits of mind and heart which help us to kind of persevere in it. Um, so when we think about this in a kind of practical way about our ordinary daily lives, Right. You, you know, you think about two parents who are deciding if they want to have children and they might say to themselves, you know, it'd be a lot easier if we didn't, because then we could just take expensive vacations and uh, have a nice house and not accumulate any debt for school and things like that. But you can see how a, a decision of that sort kind of collapses your universe and it becomes about the self. Right. It becomes about the ego. Whereas when we make decisions, you know, like along the lines of generosity and self-sacrifice then we come to discover that we abide in a bigger world than we did at first, right? Because children, they, they pull things out of you that you didn't even know you had in you. And that's kind of like, you know, some, some, some texture, some subtlety, some nuance to the question of happiness. It's not just feeling good about things because you can feel good about things in all kinds of ways. It's more so, are you in contact with those goods which make you as a human being to be perfect like your heavenly father is perfect? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, in, in your discussion, I I, I kind of grinned because you brought up uh, Viktor Frankl, who had a very miserable life in a sense because, you know, he, he was at Auschwitz and uh, wrote some books on that. And yet uh, he's able to instruct us about, you know, true happiness and true meaning. Yeah. No, I just think he, he poses some excellent questions and certainly— Based on his experience, you know, the type of philosophy or psychology that he formulates, logotherapy, really focuses on the question of meaning. Mm -hmm. um, and again, you know, the terms, of, the terms that you use, they don't matter to me too terribly much, whether we're talking about happiness or joy or felicity or delight or whatever it is. You know, people have kind of different go-to distinctions. For me, it's more a matter of identifying God as the end, right? God as beatitude. And then asking ourselves, how do I attain to that end? Because, you know, Frankl famously says, he who has a why for life can put up with any how. And so, too, when we're able to answer the why for life is God, then we can not, not devise the means thereunto, but then we're open to the means which God gives thereunto. Um, so for us, yeah, I, just, I don't think there's too terribly much drama in discovering the end of life. We're already ordered to the end by the virtue of the fact that we are creatures, specifically creatures with a supernatural destiny. For me, the drama is kind of 
figuring out the best means to that end or the means that are mine, the, the means that God has given me to that end. Yeah. Yeah. So um, and that's where the virtues come in. Right. Bingo. Uh, so uh, <laughs> so uh, uh, what are the virtues and why focus on prudence? So you have a variety of different virtues. You got the theological virtues, faith, hope and charity, which have God for their end. You have the intellectual virtues, wisdom, knowledge, understanding, which perfect thought, just kind of in say, so thinking for thinking's sake. You've got the moral virtues, which perfect our appetites, like justice, fortitude, temperance. Um, And then you've got prudence, which is a strange virtue because sometimes you'll have it classed with the moral virtues, right? You'll hear it sometimes named among the four cardinal virtues. Uh, And then you'll hear it classed sometimes with the intellectual virtues because it concerns thought. But unlike those other intellectual virtues, it concerns thinking for doing sake. Prudence is especially concerned with agency. So prudence uh, is sometimes referred to as the charioteer of the virtues because it, it it's like the charioteer, which has for its horses the different virtues which inform the appetites. And so it has this kind of provident role or this kind of overseeing role among the virtues, the movements of which it coordinates as it kind of drives them on towards their end. So... Prudence brings human life together. Prudence helps us to make decisions. Prudence makes us to be a protagonist of our life. Excellent. We're chatting with Father Gregory Pine about his new book, Prudence, Choosing Confidently, Live Boldly. More to come right after this. This is Jesse Romero. You're listening to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And welcome back, everybody. We're chatting with Father Gregory Pine of his brand new book, Prudence, Choose Confidently, Live Boldly by our Sunday Visitor Press. And uh, yeah, so Father, uh, you know, so much depends on, you know, value, meaning, happiness on our relationship with God. Who is God? What is our relationship to God? What is our relationship as part of his creation? And uh, you do a really nice job diving into uh, that in chapter two. Um, and those are things that I think most people don't think about, you know, uh, we kind of just go through life without thinking about the big questions. So, uh, maybe, uh, if you could tell us a little bit about, well, yeah, what exactly is our relationship with God and, uh, and how that fits in with, uh, getting your life in order in terms of virtues. Yeah, I think, um, one way to envision it is once we have the end set for us, then it's for us to take hold of the means, and God gives a variety of means to that end. Right, So he gives us his son in human flesh. He gives us the church. He gives us the sacraments. He gives us states of life. He gives us devotions. He gives us sacramentals. He gives us the witness of the saints. He gives us the preaching of the church's pastors. He gives us the testimony of the just. He gives us all kinds of good things which direct us in our pursuit of him, and kind of bring a certain order, right? And certainly give us like a kind of concrete instruments through which the grace of God is mediated. Um, and, and, and some of these things, they, they're interiorized, right? They, they communicate to us the divine life in a way that we actually, um, yeah, what would you say, assimilate or imitate or conform to? Uh, and that'd be like grace, virtues, gifts of the Holy Spirit. So these would be interior principles whereby the divine life is kind of appropriated by the human person. So when we consider these different means in the context of a salvation history, which is initiated in creation, which is kind of comes to its realization in the work of redemption and which awaits its final consummation at the end of the age, 
We're looking for those means which fit for us, through which we have access to grace, virtue, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, so that we can kind of like work out the, I guess, the details of our justification through a life of sanctification, and so become, yeah, yet more perfectly made to the image of God, yet more perfectly an instrument of his saving plan. And I love how you qualify that, that, you know, according to our state in life, because sometimes you can pursue good things in a wrong way. Uh, For example, this is true. Yeah, like a married person uh, deciding to live like as a hermit. That may be a good thing in a different context, but not in a marriage. Yeah, I I think actually here of St. Francis de Sales in the intro of the devout life, when he kind of commends it to Philothea, he says just that. You know, you have to do the thing which befits the state in life. And it's not as if God loves you less on account of the fact that the means are more humble. Uh, It's a matter of God making known his glory in your life in a way that's particular, right? Because God doesn't see fit to, like, reproduce testimony in carbon copy fashion. He's doing something unique. He's doing something excellent in you. So it's for us to discern what that is and then to do it rather than lusting after the way in which— God is doing it in someone else's life. Yeah. Yeah. yeah very good. Yeah. So, um, so, uh, basically, uh, our practice of virtues will not look identical from person to person. And, uh, I'm no, it'll also be, but... will be different too. Yep. That's right. At the same time, it says that the, the virtues grow proportionately like the fingers on a hand. So they don't grow identically in any one human life. Some virtues will come to greater expression or they'll come to more prominence. And that's just going to depend on who you are, right? That's going to depend on time, place, setting, circumstance, who your parents are, what your formation was, the schools that you went to, when you first heard the gospel preached, by whom, in what way. You know, like a 17th century French saint is going to emphasize different things. It's certainly going to give expression to different virtues than a 21st century American saint. So it's not for us to say, like, ooh, Cardinal Barul said these really interesting things. Maybe I should try to produce them in exact fashion. It's like, uh, I mean, I don't know. It's kind of yeah. it's kind of different, right? This is the 21st century. This is America. So live this life uh, and live it well. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's very true. And maybe that's why some of us gravitate to different saints. You know, uh, uh, one saint seems to always jump out more than another from person to person. Yeah, no, I think that's a good that's a good way by which to kind of sort our own experience. Um, yeah, you, you read some lives of the saints and you're like, interesting. And then you put this book back on the shelf and then you read other lives of the saints and you're like, I want to love the Lord that way. Um, and it's hard to say which registers, but I suspect that God is preparing in your heart certain virtues which incline you to certain witnesses. So I think like, you know, for me, why did I become a Dominican friar? Well, I can tell you that I wanted to be wholly given to the Lord. I wanted to do great and glorious things. I wanted to be perfect in charity. I wanted a life that was characterized by monastic discipline, habits, silence, penance, etc. And then I encountered the witness of St. Thomas Aquinas, and I said, bingo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, that's, that's beautiful. And so there's always a role of discernment, right, when you want to grow in virtue, because like uh, each God has a plan for each person, and... You know, you have to find what is that plan. Yeah, and the discernment is just the virtue of prudence. <laughs> yeah, exactly, it was, which brings us back to prudence. So how do we develop the virtue of prudence? Yeah, I mean, you can talk about it in a, in a big picture type way. 
uh, or you can talk about it in a very humble, small picture type way. I think probably the latter course might be more immediately helpful to folks. But prudence is about making decisions which contribute to your growth in the life of faith, your growth as a human being, specifically as somebody who acts, who operates, who chooses. So, um, you know, it'll depend on who you are. But if you're indecisive, challenge yourself to make decisions in a shorter amount of time and then not to revise them infinitely. Right. Let's say that you are tempted constantly to return your Amazon purchase because you've subsequently found something that may be better or less expensive. But then you go about each time like a 45 minute process of unpacking, repacking, retaping, printing up the returns thing and then leaving out on your front porch, verifying that the mailman picked it up, waiting on the, you know, the email that comes from Amazon a week later to say that yada yada. It's like, how about you just, you know, make for yourself a policy that for six months I'm not going to return a single thing to Amazon. And as a result of which, I bet you're a little less likely to choose precipitously, and then you're a little less likely to revisit your decision. I live in the Switzerland, and if I want to ship something back to Amazon, it costs $35. So I'll, like in most cases, it's more effective just to throw the thing away. Um, so before I make a purchase, I let it sit in the little basket for ages. Now, does that make me indecisive? In a certain sense, I, I, I tend to be more precipitous in the United States. So it's, it's good to have this as a check to that. On the other hand, you know, I'm still going to make mistakes. And then the determination is how much does time cost? You know, so like you're working out the kind of calculus. And that's just in a simple thing like making returns to Amazon. Um, but then when it comes to making bigger decisions, I think the focus is, you know, you grow in virtue. You seek to challenge yourself to grow in virtue. And then those become more plain. So for us, we can't like fall into a pattern of what some people call quandary ethics, where you ascribe incredible importance to big decisions and almost no importance to small decisions. I think that we start small and that forms in us habits of mind and heart, whereby the big things become more plain. So, you know, keep a decision journal. If you have difficulty with decisions, make them, write them down, and then revisit those decisions after however long to see how it's gone. Not just in terms of consequences, but in terms of your own agency, in terms of certainty, in terms of boldness, in terms of, you know, feeling yourself to be the protagonist of your life. Maybe read good literature, right, so you can experience others as they make decisions and kind of suffer that mystery somewhat vicariously. Lower stakes, but greater drama, stuff like that. So, I mean, small things like that can be helpful. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I had a feeling you had a history with uh, returns from Amazon just by the detail you went through. I wouldn't have a clue how to return something from Amazon. So, uh, so, uh, so when you're evaluating your decisions, let's say you, you do that, which is a great idea, having like a decision journal, and you're looking over um, how do you evaluate whether a decision has helped you become more virtuous? I mean, like you said, you don't want to look at consequences necessarily. Um, yeah. Yeah. So uh, give us the parameters. Like, how would you go through evaluating your decisions? I mean, one of, the, one of the fruits of a virtuous life is freedom, right? And freedom isn't so much defined as having a variety of options from among which you can choose. Freedoms is more, freedom is more so determined by... Um, like having the capacity to embrace those goods, which leads to your flourishing, right? So free, freedom, freedom is a matter of becoming a virtuoso in the, in the virtuous life. So we would consider those people free who don't hem and haw, but are able to do with a proper amount of deliberation or, you know, a proper amount of taking counsel. Um, they're able to do in a way that contributes to their growth. And so what would it look like for you to become more virtuous? I think it looks often for you to become more free, so you feel less buyer's regret. You revisit your decisions with less anxiety. Um, you feel a greater liberty in making those decisions in the first place. Um, you're, yeah, maybe like a little less 
precipitous and like you don't fly off the handle, nor do you, um, you know, prove yourself to be incapable of making decisions or like, or, or you, you, you see them through, you're not in constant, you should be able to gauge like some progress in those matters with a kind of discipline, consistency, with a kind of decisiveness without being, you know, overly brusque and assertive. So like you should be able to see some transformation in that direction. May, may those gains be small. Yeah. But uh, in like the long term, they should be appreciable. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, yeah, I love what you said because it reminds me of our Lord's words where, you know, someone who's trustworthy in small matters will be trustworthy in greater matters. So in a way, you can practice with those lesser decisions, you know, to try to grow in virtue. Ultimately, that should help you in the, the bigger ones. So I, I thought that was a great point. Um, another thing you do in your book is, um, boy, I'm looking at the time. So I, I don't know if we have no, enough to get into it, but uh, uh, you, you break prudence down into three stages, um, three acts of prudence. Um, we probably don't have time to go through that, but maybe you could start uh, breaking that down for us. Yeah, yeah. First step being counsel. You take counsel. You kind of get your reasons assembled. Second step being judgment, where you make a determination as to the thing that you're going to do, and then you choose it. You know, you genuinely choose it. And then the third stage being command, and that's seeing the decision through, right? Kind of like embodying the decision in actual practice. And St. Thomas will say that virtue is the, is the, excuse me, prudence is the virtue which commands. So whereas we ordinarily associate virtue with taking counsel, deliberating, uh, prudence is more so associated with command, which is to say with actually seeing an action through. So that challenges us, you know, in the way in which we practice our agency to be more involved, engaged. Interesting. All right. We're chatting with uh, Father Gregory Pine, talking about his brand new book on prudence from our Sunday Visitor Press. More to come right after this. Now, back to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda. If you'd like to join the conversation, call 888 888- Five two six two one five one. Here's Gary, and welcome back. We are chatting with Father Gregory Pine in his brand new book. Highly recommended. Prudence, choose confidently, live boldly. It's put out by Our Sunday Visitor Press. And right before the break, Father, you mentioned uh, that how prudence is that uh, that last act is to choose. And you said to to kind of see your decisions through. Maybe could you expound a little bit on that? Yeah, sure. So um, St. Thomas will break prudence down into different parts, and he describes these parts as integral parts because when you take them all together, they make up the virtue of prudence. And he says the first five of the parts, they concern the thinking dimension, and then the last three parts concern the commanding dimension. So that might be a good way by which to kind of break it down. So the thinking dimension we described as taking counsel, and then, you know, formulating a judgment. And he says the parts which inform this would be docility, which opens us to the reasons of others, uh, memory, which helps us to kind of retain our own reasons, as it were, or to sound the depths of our experience and to draw forth reasons from it. And then he lists uh, understanding, which is a kind of sensitivity to moral principles in our reasoning, shrewdness, which is a capacity to make sound snap judgments. Uh, and then reasoning, which is a capacity to like see the 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 kind of judgment as it were from its inception through to its term. 
And then command, which is, you know, you formulated the decision, the choice is made, but it's a matter of actually embodying the decision or like seeing the decision through. He has three parts which inform the command, which would be um, foresight, which is a capacity to kind of take in what might befall and to incorporate that into your execution. Um, and then caution and circumspection. So you're kind of on the lookout for circumstances that might change or potential obstacles that might arise. So that way you can reroute if necessary, all the while keeping the end in mind and seeing to it that the choice that you have made comes to comes to successful issue. So prudence isn't just about thinking, prudence is about doing, and specifically it's about thinking in service of doing. So as to perfect our agency and to make of us, you know, good good agents, right? Good, good human actors. So that's the basic shape. Yeah, that's interesting. So, uh, so when you choose the right action through prudence, it's not just uh, you just let it go and you know uh, let the consequences fall wherever they may be. There, there's a kind of shepherding process where you're you're evaluating. Okay, what is happening in the situation? Uh, does it need to change? Do I need to reevaluate it in order to achieve what I originally intended? Yeah, and, and the idea there being that choices aren't just moments, as it were. They're not just um, kind of blips on the otherwise amoral timeline of a human life. The entirety of a human life is significant in a moral sense. And the choices that we make are often choices in time that unfold in time. And so we, as human beings, are made for just this type of life to live in and through time. And so prudence is perfectly outfitted as a virtue to see to it that we conduct our agency in time and, and conduct it well. Yeah, 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 very good. So, and like you said, it's not immoral. So there is a uh, there is an area where, and I thought this was fascinating too in your book, uh, of interaction with the natural law and the conscience. And maybe if you could yeah. explain a little bit about that as well. Yeah, I think I think that when it comes to making decisions in life, a lot of us will appeal to conscience, which is a fine enough instinct. But with conscience, we're talking about just moral evaluation. We're not talking about moral action. So, so conscience, you'll check in with conscience before or after an action to determine whether or not that action was good, right? Or whether it was right or whether it was wrong. And so the conscience, the conscience can be said to like bind or to lose. It can be said to, to kind of instigate or encourage. It can be said to accuse, nag, et cetera, based on the fact that it recognizes that your activity may or may not be in line with the moral law. Okay. But the, the, the judgment of conscience just terminates in moral knowledge. You know, it's like, um, you know, you shouldn't steal. This would be an instance of stealing. This is a thing that you shouldn't do. Whereas with prudence, it actually terminates in action. So you make a judgment of prudence and it's like, um, I shouldn't steal. This would be an occasion of stealing. I am not stealing. I am not doing this, right? Um, so it's it's the kind of determination or judgment that really puts you in the driver's seat rather than kind of having you as a passenger as you watch the moral life roll by. Um, so the, the, the natural law provides us principles for reasoning, but it also provides us inclinations, right? So the natural law is at work in our members, not just so that we can recognize what is and is not to be done, but actually to move us, to conduct us to what is to be done. And that's just what prudence channels. Um, it takes those inclinations, which are informed by the moral virtues like justice, fortitude, and temperance, and then it sorts out among the different means to the ends of those virtues so that we can attain the goods which bring us into the fullness of life. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, if there's been an area that I think has been uh, really badly misunderstood, it's the role of conscience and specifically developing conscience 
you know, uh, you could think of many examples of people who say that, you know, they're, they're following their conscience on things, but their consciences aren't formed in line with what's true. Yeah. 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 And also, I mean, and ultimately it's, yeah, your, your conscience is only so good as your formation, as it were. I mean, your, your conscience is only so good as the moral character, which gives it backing. So conscience and prudence should hinge together. Yeah. Now is moral law clear enough that, uh, it could be really the basis for, um, you know, forming and directing your conscience, or is it uh, a little blurry, <laughs> so to speak? I mean, if we think about the natural law as if it were like a storehouse of principles from which we base a kind of deductive science, then things get murky. But it's not—it's not just that. It's not just principles w with which we use, or, or you know, like that we use for moral demonstrations. It's also an inclination, right? So it gives us a kind of knack for the good. Um, like we can't choose a thing except under the aspect of the good. And the natural law is purified in our lives by the, the reign or the dominion of grace. So the natural law would have had a certain efficacy before the fall. Subsequent to the fall, though, that efficacy is diminished. But the moral law cannot be wholly blotted out from the heart of man because it's attendant upon our nature, right? So insofar as you cannot do away with human nature— Right. So you cannot do away with the natural law because it's just our nature as inclined towards those ends in which it is perfected. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. Boy, you anticipated like three or four questions that I was going to raise. Uh, beautiful. Yeah. So in your book, you, you t talk about, uh, you know, uh, having this kind of bold certainty that uh, is brought about by developing virtue. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, the, the basic idea is, yeah, people often think about decisions with great trepidation, with great fear, but it needn't be so. Um, life is difficult, sure, but it needn't be as complicated as we sometimes make it, because we have a false notion as to what good choosing constitutes, or, or what constitutes good choosing. So it's like, you know, choosing isn't a matter of like flipping to the back of the book and looking at the answer key so as to verify that this is the right thing. Prudence isn't a matter of like getting it over with so that way you can just reap the harvest. Prudence is a matter of becoming a good human being. And if you're if you're about the work of becoming a good human being, then every moment matters, right? Every moment is precious because all of it is part of the story of your being conformed to Christ. You're participating or imitating, as it were, the very divine nature itself. So all moments are of equal no, that's not true entirely, but all moments are of significance. And uh, as we kind of grow in our appreciation of that, it makes it so that we take pressure off ourselves for those big moments because we see them as emerging organically from a life that is just lived uh, kind of in the register of, of agency, of, of, um, yeah, of, of a bold certainty. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, I think, important, especially for people who are like me, you know, um, very much doing baby steps in their growth in a virtuous life is don't expect a perfect package. You know, it's an ongoing growth. So you're really just measuring your growth from yesterday to today and then onwards uh, rather than just assume, well, tomorrow I'm going to be perfectly prudent and, and encapsulate like all the virtues. That's just not going to work. Yeah. I mean, St. Thomas says as much when he talks about what it means to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect or what it means to love the Lord with your whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. He says, will a higher state believe, hope that God wills a higher state for you? And then, you know, do what lies within your power today. He doesn't say exactly those things, but that is a rough paraphrase. Yeah. 
Yeah, very good. Um, so, um, uh, let's see. Uh, besides buying your book, I mean, if if you were to give somebody advice, someone comes to you, Father, <laughs> I want to start developing the principle of virtue or the virtue of prudence. Excuse me. Um, where would you advise them to start? Where would I advise them? I would advise them to start by studying. I think the book that I wrote is a good way by which to kind of study the virtue of prudence um, because I'm a Dominican and I'm always going to direct people to study. Uh, but then I also think that the type of discipline that you seek to instantiate in your decision-making processes is the type of discipline which is demanded of us more generally in life, right? So to that person, I would commend a daily habit of prayer, a good use of the sacraments, right? Like kind of commitment in Christian friendship, um, some small penances with which to, you know, kind of channel those desires and then go from there. Basically, as the grace of God takes deeper and deeper hold on your life, those virtues get teased out, right? So those virtues work to heal our desires and to embolden our desires so that we get more closely in touch with those desires. And those desires kind of do the work. They do the lifting. They provide the moral energy. So yeah, I, I typically just start there. Very good. Well, uh, you know, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. I'm just curious, how far along are you on your doctoral program? I am a little over halfway. So um, okay. I have three years, and I started in the fall of 2020, and then I'll, I should finish in May of 2023 on the outside. Okay. But, yeah, we might, we might finish a little bit beforehand. It just depends. All I'm doing effectively is writing a dissertation, so I don't have coursework. I just have, like, a couple of colloquias to attend colloquia to attend and then a dissertation to write and the dissertation's clipping along um but yeah i i hopefully will be done four or five chapters by uh the end of this academic year which leaves me next academic year for the final chapter and then introduction conclusion edits and all the things that go into that yeah loads of fun uh so you miss the u.s i do yeah i love the united states of america so much yeah well uh yeah boy uh and, oh, by the way, what was your thesis on? I didn't even ask what your thesis on uh, for your dissertation is. That's quite all right, man. Uh, it's it's uh, on Christological exemplarity, basically like how the mysteries of the life of Christ are the formal pattern or shape according to which we are saved. Interesting. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That, so that that should that should be a very short treatise, I imagine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. according to Saint Thomas Aquinas, so that limits it somewhat. There you go. <laughs> and also, I see you on Matt Frad's show as well. Uh, is there a periodic time you do that, or is that cut down at all? Yeah, so I just do I do two videos a week that post on Saturday and Sunday, and then one live stream a month, and then a little stuff on the back end for his Patreon patrons. And then I contribute to another podcast called Godsplaining with four other Dominican okay. friars. Mm -hmm. And that's, uh, yep, Thursdays for the most part, but other things besides. Excellent. Well, Father, thank you so much for coming on the show. We appreciate it. Hey, thanks so much for having me. All right. It's Father Gregory Pine. The book is Prudence. Choose Confidently, Live Boldly, put out by our Sunday Visitor Press. Check it out, folks. It's a great book. Coming up next, High Impact Catholic Talk coming at you with the Terry and Justice Show. Thank you so much for listening. God willing, we'll be back again tomorrow. Do this thing we call Hands on Paul Justice. Bye-bye, everybody.